Hey everyone, thank you for listening to Missing on the Crawl Space Media Network. If you like this show, you will love Crawl Space, which is also hosted by us. We launched Crawl Space in 2017, and we have a huge catalog of incredible and thought-provoking interviews. Check out our entire network of shows at crawlspace-media.com. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome back to Missing. I am Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. How are you today? I'm doing all right as well. And Lance, uh, as you know, this is a an emotional time of year. And uh, Maura went missing on February 9th, 2004. We are releasing this on either February 8th or February 9th. This episode for us will mark the 17-year anniversary of when Maura Murray went missing. And at this point, it's hard to come up with something to say that sounds motivational or positive because it is frustrating because the constant spinning of the wheels is just endlessly frustrating with this case. I mean, we're, we're talking about something that a few years ago we were saying, you know, it's not going to be this way at the 20-year anniversary. But how close are we to the 20-year anniversary right now? And can we confidently say it's not going to be this way, that there will be answers? And, I mean, my, my heart breaks every time I think about another anniversary, another year, another tribute, another time where we tell people to light a candle for Mora and and then try to back that up with, you know, we're here for you. Let's bring her home this year. Maybe it's just being... Uh, uh, you know, a survivor of 2020, right? Maybe that's just part of where my attitude is coming from. Where, you know, it last year and the and the year prior were just so hard, and it would be nice to come out and say, you know, let's 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 get some answers this year. But there's no track record of doing that. And I mean, all we can say is that we're going to keep trying. But there's nothing I can personally say at this point where it's going to make anything any different yeah we certainly can't promise that but we can show the murrays and we can show the state of new hampshire and massachusetts and the community out there and all the communities of true crime cases out there how much mora means and how important it is to bring her home still and you know you're right it it is important not just for the individual human being Maura murray but it really represents at this point an entire community 
of like-minded individuals who are researching on their own, who are looking into Moore's story, her disappearance, and trying to figure out what's going on. Sometimes there are missteps along the way, and sometimes people are offended, and sometimes those relationships don't ever get repaired, and sometimes they do get repaired. What I'm saying is this is something that is building to something better. So Maura Murray, the person I would love to have answers for, but the community as a whole, looking into her, maybe looking into other cases and and being as passionate about those cases, that all came from the passion they had starting with Moore's uh, disappearance. So, I mean, if anything is to come out of Mora's disappearance that isn't a direct answer to where she is, at at least these people in the community can contribute to help find answers for, for other families in the meantime. But let's show that we do still care about this case. And I know we've done it for a few years in a row, but let's keep up this tradition. Please take a picture of yourself or of a candle and post that and tag us. If you're doing it on Twitter, tag us at MissingCSM or at Maura Murray Doc. Do it on Instagram and your stories. Tag us at Missing Maura Murray on Instagram or Missing CSM. We'll share your story too. We'll try our best on Facebook as well. And if you have any information in Maura Murray's disappearance, you can submit a tip through the Cold Case Unit, their website. You can email them at coldcaseunit at dos.nh.gov. Or you can call them toll-free at 800-525-5555. And also, if you're listening to this on Missing, I want to let you know that we do have another feed called Missing Maura Murray that is specifically episodes on Maura Murray. And if you're listening to this on the podcast called Missing Maura Murray, please know that there is another podcast that we host called Missing, where it's updated more frequently and we cover other missing persons cases. And I just want to add that I think keeping the faith is a really powerful thing to do at this particular time, it does come across as frustrating, and that's fine. And and you can get uh, enormously irritated with lack of information or, or bad information. Um, you can go down the wrong rabbit hole, and you can come out the other side, and you can be even more confused than you were going into it. But getting back to the community, reach out to the people who you know can help and you know you can trust and and they can sort of take your hand and guide you through and it's going to be okay right i mean if you keep the faith and you understand that there's one goal and there's going to be a bunch of distractions along the way and a bunch of uh you know trees falling in your path you just gotta like hop over them and just keep moving forward we'll probably come to another year where we say you know maybe this is the year but at least we went through that year and we've come come to this one and then we'll come to the next one until it's over. So as long as you keep the faith, you can just handle the frustrations. You can you can also take a step back for a little bit and take a breather and then jump back in when you're ready. But I think I think just a little self-awareness and, and a little faith will go a long way. I agree, Lance. And progress isn't uh, a giant leap forward all the time. Sometimes it's uh, clearing some branches off of uh, a giant hole. Okay, everybody, and this episode that we're about to bring you, we recorded live a few weeks ago on the great platform Get Vocal. Check that out at GetVocal.com. We do weekly Thursday night shows over there. And a few weeks ago, we had the prosecutors, Brett and Alice, on, and we had a great conversation about Maura Murray. Yeah, we sure did. The conversation covered many Maura Murray topics. It covered some some other topics that weren't more related, but we got back on track and nothing felt like it was forced, uh, as is the case with a lot of those Get Vocal shows. If you haven't checked it out, please do. We do it uh, every Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, True Crime Thursday at Get Vocal, and Vocal is spelled V-O-K-L. And it was such a delight to talk to Brett and Alice again. It's been a while since we formally had them on and had a a recorded conversation. And the interaction with the people in the chat room always lives up to and exceeds expectations. And I really hope that you feel the energy that comes through with this interview. Okay, everybody, keep the faith out there. Check out the Prosecutors Podcast. Please tweet or Instagram or Facebook and tag us and we'll share them.
Well, welcome, Brett and Alice. It's been a few months since we've spoken to you on our shows. And uh, yeah, can you can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on with your show? Well, I mean, we've just been we have not spent all our time on more Murray. I know that seems unusual to some people since we talk about it all the time. But yeah, we're up to we did make it past six episodes. We're up to 50 something now. We've been doing a lot of different cases. We're doing Scott Peterson right now. So if anybody's interested in that case. We are, it seems like, never going to be finished with it. Um, but yeah, just having a good time, trying to entertain the people. I'm still recording in my closet, so things are going <laughs> great for us. <laughs> good, and you're enjoying the experience so far. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is, I mean, if only people would pay us to do this, it'd be the greatest job ever. <laughs> and so I also want to hear about, you know, you're, you guys are, are rebranding, relaunching, missing. Are you guys going to be doing a lot of missing cases now? You don't want to hear about us. <laughs> I don't want to don't hear about you. Give the people what they want. <laughs> well, yeah, we um we did uh, switch the title to the the main feed, um, and we we shifted it to to missing. We also simultaneously launched a new podcast, a new feed called Missing Maura Murray. So to not lose any, I guess, searchability, we didn't really want to lose that name, you know. But I think the title missing for our show, for what our show's been the last, like, three years, is much more appropriate, to be honest. And uh, and I know we've covered Maura Murray a lot, more than any other case, obviously. But I I wonder what it's like as a family member who's like, oh, yeah, I'll do a show with you guys. It's missing Maura Murray. What, huh? Why is it called that? Like, if we're, I don't know. Maybe it's confusing. And I know from a bunch of reviews that we've seen, we've seen people be a little confused by that so i just think it was the right time yeah and and our position in the nonprofit private investigations for the missing with bruce maitland is to bring these cases that come to that organization bring them more visibility raise awareness and do as many episodes as possible do as, as much of a deep dive into these cases like archer ray johnson or phoenix colden and open it up with uh investigators that are put on the case, our research um, that's been compiled into uh, a document that we go through in a, in a detailed way and eventually have family members on, uh, keep plugging it out there, keep, keep uh, you know, the social media going. And that's our job with private investigations for the missing is to make sure that the, the stories of these missing people don't just become a single one-off episode and they're done, you know? Yeah, that's that's really uh, fantastic work. I mean, I kind of want to hire you guys as our agents to work with <laughs> because I really do mean that, you know, there's such a draw to these stories and you get all the hits on the news media articles and uh, people talk about what they know within the first 48 hours and then it, it fades. And if no one's talking about it, uh, memories fade, people stop thinking about it, people stop trying to uh, remember parts of the story they may know. And so thank you guys for doing that. It really does make a difference. Um, we try to get to our witnesses as soon as possible after the fact of whatever event we are investigating and um time matters each day each hour matters so thank you guys for what you do i'm only reiterating what people are saying in the chat boxes well you can pay us you can pay us well <laughs> there's, no, there's no uh not a long conversation there yeah and you know we've seen that what alice was saying and more murray i mean you've got two of the main witnesses in this case are, are dead now um, Bruce Atwood and Cecil Smith, and and that happens. And the longer the cases go on, the more likely it is you're never going to find the answer. So I'm I'm really excited about what you guys are going to do. Uh, we've talked about all the good work you did on Brandon Lawson. I mean, I feel like you basically solved that case. So, well, thanks. Uh, that was um, you know talking talking to Brandon's brother was uh, kind of enlightening, and and we got to give a big thanks to Chloe for uh, setting that up um, for us. She had some communication with him. Um, for a while before that had uh that interview had happened um and we we spoke to the lawson family as well great people um and i just hope they uh they bring brandon home jason watts in the chat room right now um i think we're gonna do another lawson episode pretty soon with jason um jason's a force in getting searches going so uh hopefully there'll be some some news uh soon in that case but you mentioned maura murray 
Maura Murray and uh, the case of, of Maura Murray's mysterious disappearance. Of course, she went missing in North Haverhill, New Hampshire, um, February 9th, 2004. And you guys have done uh, several episodes on the case. How many, uh, how many have you done now on, uh, on Maura Murray's case? I think we've done seven episodes, four main episodes, two follow-ups, and then the most recent one where we talked about speaking with Bill Roush's commander. But I feel like we mentioned more Murray every other episode. Um, and I, and I, I get it. It's a, it's a relevant case and there's so much chatter online. Um, you know, there, there's a thread that Twitter thread, I believe is still going from July. Um, so I really, I really hope that hits the year mark. I think that would be a really cool milestone. I've never seen anything like that. (laughs) Is there a Guinness book of world records for the longest thread, the longest Twitter thread that has to be a record? I don't know. Especially a thread where everyone's blocking each other. <laughs> it's actually gotten a lot better recently because a lot of people just sort of disappeared off the thread. But <laughs> it's uh, I I love it. It's its own community now. The thread, you know, and uh, and I will say there's there's sometimes where I'm I, I follow every every tweet, um, and other times where I, I have to take a step back and and do other work and things like that. And I think everyone's kind of like that who who's in that thread, and um, I think it really is a community. I'll give an example. We were talking about this today on there of information that I had never thought about. And we talk about on our, our podcast all the time, the wisdom of the crowd and just people talking through things. And that's what, what seems to be the absence of any kind of powder in Mora's vehicle, which you would expect to be there after the deployment of an airbag. And I had never thought about that, but you know, it was certainly the case that, that airbags at that time used talcum powder and, and other powders to sort of lubricate the airbag so that it would come out when you had a wreck and, and her airbags deployed at some point, And yet it doesn't seem like the number one, it, Butch Atwood didn't say she was covered in powder when he saw her. And it doesn't seem like there's a ton of powder in her car. So you kind of wonder why is that? Maybe it has a simple explanation. Maybe it's not anything, but that was something interesting that somebody brought up. That is interesting. And uh, the, the chemicals on that powder are kind of, um, I don't know, they can, they can really kind of mess with your, uh, your skin too. If I'm not mistaken, I believe uh, I, I've gotten into an ax a few w- with the airbags going off and it kind of messes with your eyes and kind of uh, can irritate your skin, too. But that's what right. I mean. There's so much attention on this case. I mean, you know, Guinness Book of World Records Twitter thread. And that's kind of the first time I'd ever heard that comment be brought up. And so that just means that obviously not every topic has been um, exhausted and there is more out there if it were exhausted. More Murray probably wouldn't, you know, there'd be more information out there. So um, I do think Wisdom of the Crowd is fantastic, especially um, in this case, and especially when people are being civil. <laughs> I went there. Exactly. How, how do you, um, how would you try to, because the passion and the energy in that thread and in Mora's disappearance is, is so strong and people have such strong opinions uh, with the occasional, with, with the occasional, you know, battle here and there, yeah, I would love to see similar threads with Brianna Maitland, Brandon Lawson. I'd love to see all of them going. I know that's probably impossible, but h- how would you try to get people to, 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 to put that that energy into into a few others as well? Or do you think that the energy is just totally spent with this one? Well, I don't think it's totally spent with this one, but I think you're you're kind of selling yourself short here a little bit. Um, I don't, I mean, I know there were people talking about Mara Murray online before you guys came along and before James Renner wrote his book, but I had never heard of Mara Murray and I didn't know anything about Mara Murray until I started listening to your show and listening to your show and, and learning about the mystery is what, what got me interested and got me hooked. So I actually think not to keep patting you guys on the back cause you don't need it anymore and you already have it. But I think this, this rebranding and, and really focusing on these things and bringing more attention to these cases is a way to generate that kind of passion. Now, not all of the passion's good, and we all know that, but I think certainly what you're seeing on that thread, if I were missing, and I said this in our last episode, we talked about this, if I ever went missing, I hope people are as passionate about me as they are about Mar Murray. Yeah, for sure. And I, I actually think, I just want to add to what you said, Lance, I think that um, there are places on the internet where people are talking about Brandon Lawson a lot, um, and Phoenix Colden, I think, a bit too. I just think it's not Twitter. Um, I think that Reddit, that's, I know Brandon Lawson's case is very active on Reddit, 
Um, and uh, Twitter, you know, with this more Murray case and community specifically, that sort of happened, um, I guess, organically. Um, so that 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 Twitter thread, I, I will kind of consider a bit of a shooting star. Um, because I do think there are other places like Facebook and, and Reddit where they, people do congregate about other cases. And I do think, I think one thing that would be useful if somebody wants to do it, I'm not skilled enough to do it. And this sort of exists in certain places, but people don't always trust all the various people who are involved in this. I think some sort of central repository of information, uh, where people can go for us when we're doing these cases, we're doing Scott Peterson and, and you asked earlier whether or not people think he's innocent. There are people who really think he's innocent, and they put together every document on his case. I can I can look at every piece of evidence. I can read every every transcript. I can read every appellate brief. And having all that in one place really allows you to dig through and maybe see things that other people haven't seen. And I think if somebody did that and really kind of brought it together in one place where people all felt comfortable going um that would be a wonderful thing and i also think even even like a fact a question and answer thing so people always ask questions that people people know the answer to like you know what alcohol did she buy mm -hmm. that night what alcohol did she take with her those questions are answered and just having a place where all that information was located would be great well funny you should say that we have ashley and rachel from uncovered in the uh, chat room and their website, which Michelle has put up, uncovered.com, is exactly what you're talking about. Um, sort of, not not 100% exactly what you're talking about, but it is that centralized area, that centralized location where people can go and uh, it's sort of a living, a, a living database. That's great. I know that's a lot of work and that's fantastic work that they're doing. So um, kudos to y'all for having the vision and uh, put in the hard work to do it. Well, Tim and I gave them the idea. So <laughs> that's right. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so um, do you guys have any takeaways on that powder from the uh, the airbags or, or any any, I guess, um, strong observations from what was happening in that Twitter thread about this? I mean, I don't, I don't know what to think about a lot of things in this case. The problem with talking about this case, and I feel like whenever we talk about it, we always run into this, is where to start. And, you know, one of the questions I think everybody has is where did that accident happen? Did it happen that night? Did it happen on that road? Did it happen at that turn? Is it an accident from earlier? And the fact that the powder, there doesn't seem to be much powder in there. And I looked at photos again and just couldn't see anything. Now, maybe there just wasn't much in there. I mean, it's a Saturn. I doubt they did a very good job. Uh, constructing that particular part of the car but you know it makes you wonder did it happen before and maybe she cleaned up a little bit between when the accident occurred and when she disappeared that night I mean that's one possibility um, but I mean it's just one of those little things there's so many little things in this case that don't quite add up we uh, on the Twitter thread for instance people argue about whether or not she even hit a tree and there you know there's people who really think she hit a tree and people who really don't think she hit a tree and, you know, there, there are people who don't even think it was more Marie there that night, that it was somebody else. So I don't know. I feel like it, the difficulty with discussing the case is, is, like I said, I just don't even know where to start. I don't know. I don't know which thread to start with. I feel like you almost have to set down. These are going to be the, the assumptions we have while we're talking about it today. We're going to assume, you know, these five things and then and then work from there is the only way you can do it. You know, two insights on that is all we have to judge by now, you know, more than you know, decades later, are pictures. And there's two things there. We know from evidence cleanup, especially when it's powder, it's really hard to remove every trace of a powder. We see this all the time with drugs, with um, any sort of evidence that we see um, uh, a defendant try to clean up. So if, in fact, there was no trace, which we don't know because I'm not sure that they were actually looking for traces of this powder, it would be difficult if... Um, the the powder had been there recently and it was all cleaned out it would probably have to have deployed much earlier been cleaned and then had the elements get to it your windows down your door opening closing getting in and out of the car enough times that it dislodges all of the residue um and then second point which i've already brought up is you may not be able to see it in the pictures but there may be um trace amounts of the residue that no one knew to look for at the time and now it's much too late and it's not going to be contained in the reports and there's no malfeasance there there's no cover-up there it's just there are so many factors to be looking for when 
when uh, an investigation begins, you don't even know where to begin. You don't even know where to start. You don't know what's going to become important later on, 2020, right? Hindsight 2020. And so, I think those are two major limitations, though that's a fantastic point to bring up. There are limits to how far you can take that discussion based on the fact that there's just nothing in the report, that evidence is long gone, and all we have to base any sort of current discussion on is a picture which can't possibly um, capture trace amounts of powder. And the pictures we have are mostly taken years later when that car has been sitting in that lot for so long. I mean, the other problem here is it could be in page one of the police report that the New Hampshire police just simply refused to release. And I just, I, at this point, I think it's malpractice that the New Hampshire state police are not more forthcoming with what's in that file. They've had it for 16 years. They're not going to solve this case. It's, it's, it's ridiculous and absurd that they won't just put the information out there. If it's going to be solved, it's going to be solved by the people around here not by not by the police you know if if they're on the verge of a breakthrough in this case then let's 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 hear about it but i i don't think that's the case right, they're they're biding their time they're waiting they're waiting to uh spring the trap i, I don't want to wait until all the witnesses die so that there can't be a trial. <laughs> exactly. until there's absolutely no one to talk about or talk to um <laughs> well i i think this whole thing brings up a, a bigger point um talking about the the powder and searching for for something that they didn't realize they should be searching for. And uh, I, I'm wondering how many other things like that might be in place with Moore's disappearance, um, because all of these things only became a topic due to this community really analyzing and digging in and and looking at every single thing. And to be clear, unless I'm mistaken, no, there's nothing written from law enforcement on any report saying airbag deployed, but no trace of powder from airbag, right? Like that's not written anywhere. There's no documentation of any police officer saying this is strange. The airbag was deployed, but there's no powder. So I just want to be clear, like that has that's not documented. That's not released information, but I will just say that would be surprising if that were written for this reason. Yeah. Um, the police officers probably, if they see an airbag deployed, they're probably not even thinking about the powder. They're not looking for inconsistencies because they would just think natural, uh, logical conclusion. We see an airbag. That's all I have to care about right now. I don't have to care about whether someone is setting a scene here. Um, when you show up to an accident, the typical traffic uh, traffic cop is not looking for, huh, did someone plant this accident scene? They're, they are going for a rote report that says mile marker 48, you know, car hits tree, cannot start, call tow truck. Oh, now I have to wait in the dark for this tow truck. Um, that's what's happening for a typical traffic stop. So I only note that, it. no, you're right. It's not written anywhere. And I would personally be shocked if that were written. If it were written, I would say, huh, why did you notice that? That is a weird thing for you, that's traffic cops. That's even weirder than... <laughs> exactly. Right. Well, yeah, and... and... Oh, I was just going to say, I, I want to encourage anyone who's listening or anyone who knows a traffic cop to check out that Twitter thread. So the next time they tr they find a car on the side of the road, they might think, well, hmm, in 10 years, they might be questioning every single thing that I did tonight. So I'm going to really, really analyze this scene. Yeah. You know, and look, I, I think Cecil Smith, I don't think he's a bad guy. I don't think he had anything to do with this. I don't think he covered anything up. I've been pretty clear about that. I don't think there's any police involvement. But I also don't think Cecil Smith was, you know, on the short list for the FBI or anything. I think he was a guy who was biding his time in a small town. If you even look at the logs, I mean, what what number of call was this for him that night, right? I mean, he he, I don't think he really cared too much about this and didn't really care too much about more and didn't put too much effort into it. And now here we are 16 years later trying to piece together based on things that the Westman say and, and things that are written in the log and things that are written in the call log, trying to figure out what happened. Yeah, I will note this. So I do have a friend who does the traffic beat um, for a local PD. Um, it's hard work. And he was actually criticizing us for our Mytrice Richardson episodes. If you haven't listened to those, uh, you know, very quick, basically Mytrice Richardson um, gets picked up by the cops, taken back. And then from there she, she disappears. But um, he was saying, what you've just described with Mytrice Richardson, and he said, Maura Murray, so typical. We get 15 of those calls 
depending on how large your jurisdiction is, 15 of those calls easily that you have to write up by the end of the night. And he said that when he was hitting, hitting the street as the beat cop, he worked overtime basically 100% of the time. There wasn't a single day where he left on time and he had a family at home and it was incredibly taxing. And he says, shortcuts are taken, right? You're not going to say, huh, I see an airbag deployed. Let me take 20 steps further in when 99.99999% of the time, nothing's going to be strange about that. Um, and I thought that was that was a helpful insight for me who has never worked the beat, uh, you know, the street, pounding the street and then um, having my shift end at at 9 p.m. and still having a stack this high of pretty rote traffic reports to write up before I can go home. So that's something to keep in mind for those who, who like to criticize, you know, that, oh, the cops did a bad job here. Maybe that guy hadn't slept in 25, you know, 25 hours and really wanted to go get a burger to eat that night. I, I, I agree. I, I don't think the cops had... I, we we've said in the beginning too that it was like shoddy police work, but that was us, you know, looking at the details very surface level style. Uh, and when you break it down like that, it makes so much sense. It's one police officer in a small town, honestly, probably did his best in that situation. Like he he talked to everybody in the area that he could talk to. Um, it's on the it's on the uh, reports that they were contacting uh the 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 hospital the cottage hospital to see if the person had shown up yet so they were kind of following up on it uh so i mean what more could he have done you know in uh, sunday morning or monday morning quarterbacking that like what more could he have done it it wasn't even a crime scene yeah and i mean if you think about how many people have said in talking about this case to this day well, it had to be somebody she knew because what are the chances some random person drove by and picked her up, right? And that's 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 right. And I'm sure the police officer would have thought the same thing. She's just walking down the road. We're going to find her. She's a DUI walk away. You know, this this is no big deal. This happens all the time. And he he just couldn't know that we were still going to be talking about this case today. Yeah, well, whenever I think about Maura Murray's case, I actually think about uh, my drive to work, which is short, relatively. It's like 15 minutes. And on any given day, I'll see at least one or two abandoned cars on the side of the road with like that little rope, that you know, the little like string tied to it. I, I think that indicates that it's been cleared or whatever. Um, and I think nothing of it. Um, it's not a recent accident. You know, there's no there's no wreckage. There's nobody there. Um, and how how rote that is. And no one knew that this would become really one of the biggest missing persons cases in America of all time. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So that last, that latest episode that you produce in the Maura Murray series um, was, you, you spoke with Bill Roush's commanding officer at the time of Maura Murray's disappearance. Um, I would love to revisit uh, what happened, um, if you could set that call up uh, for us. Yeah, so I mean, it's no surprise to anybody that Bill Roush is a, is a suspect for a lot of folks in this case, and there are people who think that the most likely story, given the fact that most people who are involved in the crime are significant others, is that Bill was up there and that something happened and, and he took care of it. And the thing that's always the reason a lot of people don't believe that is because it would be very difficult for him to be in, in Massachusetts, New Hampshire when he was supposedly in Oklahoma. So we started looking for the name of his commander at the time to see if we could reach out and find out whether or not Bill's story as he tells it actually happened. And then as a result of the Twitter thread, Bill put together this dog and pony show, which I'm not still to this day, I'm not really sure why he did this where it was kind of the, the Geraldo and Al Capone's vault of, of Twitter where everybody was going to have this zoom reveal to see whether or not his, the, what he had filed to get leave 
whether or not that that document was still in his his folder well it wasn't it, it doesn't exist it's not there but one of the people who was on that call um who i guess is a little controversial in the community but everybody's controversial in the community so big deal noticed the name of his lieutenant colonel at the time on one of the documents that was in his folder and basically tracked that guy down called him and and got the story but because as i said everybody in the community is controversial a lot of people didn't believe him or they thought he was being played i mean you guys know i mean james renner was was getting hoax hoaxes sent to him over the summer like really elaborate hoaxes where people were really trying to mess up the investigation by putting in this false information. And so some people thought that was the case and he gave us the number and we went number one, just to walk through it and stop me anytime. If I'm rambling, one thing we did is we just waited. We just waited a few months. If it was some sort of hoax, we wanted it to die down. And the second thing we did is we did a deep dive on this guy to find out whether or not this person exists, whether or not he's in the military, whether or not he's a Lieutenant Colonel, whether or not he was assigned to Fort seal. And basically we're able to confirm all of that and tie the number to him for the last good good while and we just called him out of the blue one day and you know it went about like you would expect if some two random people who host a podcast called you in the middle of the day and wanted to talk about something that happened 16 years forthcoming, ago forthcoming he he gave you everything right off the bat <laughs> he remembered everything clearly yeah. so good yeah. point we different. covered we, we covered this in the episode yeah, the and the you, answer is yeah. no and we wouldn't expect that right he was uh very standoffish at first because um it, you know, think about you. If uh, an IRS agent called you and said they needed your secure social security number, you'd be like, go pound sand. Um, so it wasn't quite like that, but he was very standoffish. He, he'd been given a heads up that we were going to call. So he wasn't rude to us, but he very much had an attitude like, what do you want? <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't need to talk to you. Fine. I'll talk to you. But what do you want? And, you know, he, it's like I already right. talked to one guy about this. What? 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 It, it was of no consequence <laughs> to him, and he he was not he wasn't rude to us, but he had the appropriate level of what is this? This is outrageous, right? Um, and then once you know, we we tried to keep our questions focused and limited, and um, this is what you have to do when you interview a witness. You can ask them a million questions, but if you do that, you actually won't get very much information because um, you're not focused and they they won't have specified knowledge. People lose attention span. He clearly was not wanting to gab with us for hours. He wanted to get in and get out and just, you know, be friendly enough. And that was it. So we asked very specific questions. We planned out what we were going to ask him ahead of time. And that was it. Um, and he remembered the things you would expect him to remember. Um, he remembered he had quite a good memory, I would say, um, for this being so long ago, but he didn't remember minutia that we wouldn't expect him to remember. We, he also didn't remember things as if he hung out with Bill all the time because he didn't. He was the commanding officer. He just happened to remember this particular instance because subsequently Maura Murray made national news and he happened to look up one day and see Bill on the TV talking, um, you know, pleading uh, for the recovery of Mora. Um, and I believe when we talked to him, he may not have even necessarily recognized that Mora had never been recovered, uh, had never been found. He knew she was missing at the time, but he had not followed this case. He did not know that a Twitter thread existed, um, that Reddit is crazy on this case, that there are podcasts devoted to it. I do not believe he knew any of that, um, which actually lends credibility to him because he it's not as if he studied this case well, had a cheat sheet and was like, ah, these are the holes and these are the conspiracy theories that people have. And I'm going to fit directly into these. Not at all. Yeah, when he the the time that he softened was towards the end when we did explain to him that Maura was still missing. And he he at that point, you know, really expressed his sorrow for the family and the fact that they had never been able to find their their daughter, he um, didn't seem all that concerned about Bill. But <laughs> I don't think they had much of a relationship. Um, but yeah, I mean, he he remembered this was a very strange thing that happened. I think this was probably the only time in his career that a soldier showed up at his his room and said, "Hey, I need to go look for my fiance who who's missing," and he let Bill take advance leave. It was an emergency leave. It's been called emergency leave a lot. I think that's confused a lot of people, but that's not what it was. Bill had to pay that leave back later on, and and that was pretty much it. He knew that Bill at the time, because it was a training uh, battalion and because of Bill's responsibilities, that he would have been training over the weekend. So one thing he was able to say is if Bill had, had left, if he had left before 
or if he had left without asking, people would have noticed because his his absence would have been conspicuous, uh, which, you know, for me, pretty much, I don't really have any doubt at this point that Bill was in Oklahoma the night that, that Maura went missing. Now, what happened after that? I, I want to ask that, but I, I want to real quick uh, say that you, you just said Bill had to pay that leave back. What does that mean? So he, he basically went in the hole, right? So he had zero leave days okay. and say he took 14. Well, he earns a certain amount of leave every paycheck. And so until he had earned back the time he took, oh. he didn't have any leave. And, and the commander actually said that was one of the reasons he didn't like to give advanced leave because soldiers would get into the hole and never get out of it. And then like Christmas would come and they wouldn't have any leave because they're still paying back the leave that they had taken earlier. And so he didn't like to do oh, it. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, Ryan's question is, now that I hear it out loud, it's sort of weird that the CO never followed up with Bill to ask, did you ever find your missing girlfriend, the one you begged me for advanced leave for? Um, did did this gentleman address this with you? You know, I- uh, I understand how that may seem confusing, but remember, the commanding officer is actually not Bill's direct supervisor. This is not who he interacts with on a daily basis. His direct supervisor had denied the leave, and his only way of appealing that was to go to the commanding officer. Imagine if you work for a company and you had to go to the CEO. You never talk to the CEO. You're really not allowed in the presence of the CEO, but this is a, a dire situation, and so you are cashing in your chips to go talk to the commanding officer. The commanding officer... I've been in uh, a few organizations that have a lot of hierarchy like this. They do not have enough time in a day to follow up. That might seem heartless, but there is no reason actually for the commanding officer to be typically in a room with a lieutenant. Um, They are not their drill sergeant. They uh, typically are honestly working on higher level things. They have phone calls with other uh, similarly ranking people in other agencies, uh, in the military, in the government, um, and it's not surprising to me that they may never actually have been in the same place at the same time and certainly not alone. Um, so the fact that he didn't, he never mentioned this and we didn't ask him specifically, but I think he would have probably mentioned it if he, if it had happened. So, and here's the other thing that a commanding officer deals with uh, lots of fire drills on a personal and professional and uh, military wide level. This was probably one, one of a list of emergencies he dealt with that day. And um, it went on for weeks, months. Uh, in that time period, he probably had multiple bombs go off. Um, I, I know that in, in our job, you know, we'll have um, explosions in court metaphorically that happened day to day. And someone, you know, someone I work with, an agent will be like, how did that work out? And I will look at them blankly. And they're like, remember that catastrophic event in court? And it was like three days ago. And I was like, oh my goodness, I've had like 10 fire drills since then. I, I did not remember it. It's just, there's so much on my mind since then. And there was nothing I had to do. There was nothing I was supposed to follow up on. The commanding officer had no next steps. He didn't have to follow up as long as Bill came home, if there were any issues with him extending past what he'd been approved for, that would be up to his direct uh, supervisor to discipline him or report it up the chain. It would not be the commanding officer's job. So in other words, I don't actually think it's that um, strange. Okay. Tara in the chat room says, um, did the CEO, uh, did Bill CEO ever mention that he spoke to the cops at all? I guess the New Hampshire State Police, did that come out? Good question. We also did not ask that specific question, but he never mentioned that. I think if he had talked to the police, he would have mentioned it to us. Um, He had to search his memory a little bit. Um, This only stood out. And we asked him, we're like, why do you remember these particular things? And he gave us a vignette of why he remembered. And it was that he looked up at the TV. He had approved this advanced leave and saw Bill's face. And he was like, huh. He wasn't lying is, is what he told us, right? He didn't really think he was lying, but there was, it's not every day you see uh, someone you know uh, on uh, like a national news network, uh, especially not talking about uh, a loved one who is missing. And so that stuck out in his mind. And that makes sense to me. If that happened to me, I would remember it as well. Now, another uh, defining factor for people is speaking to law enforcement. And he didn't mention that. So uh, that leads me to assume that he probably did not speak to law enforcement, but we didn't ask that specific question and uh, he did not bring it up either. And one thing, I don't know why this is, and you'd have to ask him, but I know when Bill gave James people to talk to to confirm his alibi, Bill did not give him this person's name. So it's possible that when the police asked for names, he gave them the same names he gave James, which I think was like a roommate and and somebody else that he worked with. It's possible the police called them 
not the commanding officer. I, and to, I just want to um, clarify one thing. When, when do, is there a date that he uh, visited his commanding officer and requested this? So the commanding officer doesn't remember the date of the day, and you wouldn't really expect that. What he remembers is that it was on a work day and it, that it was at the end of the work day. And he said, I think he said 530 or 6 typically for them, Alice. So he remembered he remembered that. He remembered that this happened at around that point on a weekday. And also to clarify, he was do you know if he was ever approached by law enforcement to confirm that he approved this leave? We don't know. And he and, didn't mention it. And the fact that um his name is not out there, um, I think also leads me to believe he probably has not been suggested. And I'll and I'll point out why. Um if Bill knows he's being investigated and he's asked to give um, names to of people who can um, help support his alibi, he's going to give people um, who um, he feels comfortable giving, right? Think about back to that CEO example. If you are a, let's say, five rungs down from the CEO, uh, even if you spoke to the CEO, you probably are not going to ask them for a recommendation when there are other people on your same level or right above you who you can direct the uh, the police too, um, because it probably would be alarming if your commanding officer had to speak to the police on your behalf. It just doesn't look good for you. So if the police don't specifically ask, um, you may not be hiding anything, but I know I wouldn't give like the highest ranking person <laughs> in my, in my office. Um, if I have other people who can vouch for me. Um, so the fact that no one really knew his name, that it had to be searched out uh, and given to us. And we have not released his name out of respect for him. He asked that we not release his name. And I don't think people need to be, um, you know, uh, peppering him uh, with more questions. Uh, I don't think that he's been. But uh, I gotta, I have to dis, sorry. I, I have to maybe uh, be a bit of a devil's advocate or present another side to that scenario that you painted Alice um, with not wanting to have law enforcement contact the highest ranking um you know the, the highest ranking person i mean why wouldn't he think to himself okay they're the the police are asking me about my girlfriend's disappearance i want to end this real quick and who better to get me uh a solid ass alibi than the commanding officer like they're they're not going to question the commanding officer and and you know the commanding officer would give to the best of his knowledge, what happened. And he would say, yeah, he was here. I, I granted leave. This is when it happened in the time. And I mean, I feel like that wouldn't be nearly as questioned as maybe someone in a lower rank. Maybe. I was just going to say, there's a couple things that could be going on here. I mean, it's possible the police never checked his alibi. I mean, it's possible the police never even asked him for anybody that they just, they just assumed, you know, he, his parents picked him up and, and whatever. We don't have to, to run that down. So that could be one reason the police never, never reached out. Or it could be that when he was asked, he gave, he gave the, you know, his, his roommate or the sergeant. Let me point out one thing though. This narrative has shifted over time, right? At, at the time, um, the only thing I think our conversation with this commanding officer shows is that Bill did not leave well and did not leave in advance of Mora going missing. What happened after who the heck knows? And we say that in the podcast. Maybe something happened. We don't know. All this is saying is that when uh, Bill did not leave um, his uh, his base before she went missing. Now, that's pretty easy at the time to check. All you had to do, you don't have to prove that he's the one who asked and who he asked in order to get that leap. All you have to do as the police pick up the phone, call his base. They have his records at the time. Uh, remember, it's within the week or something. Hey, did this officer leave on a Tuesday? Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Click. They don't actually need to know who they talk to because at that time, probably everyone remembers, oh, yeah, he left on this day. I can tell you right now because I saw him the next day. I gave him a ride. I'm watering his plants, what have you. Um, so that's just not an important a thing perhaps at the time to follow up on. Now, years later, when people begin to have these theories, like maybe he left beforehand, that's that's when these sorts of um, questions become more relevant. And remember, limited resources. Uh, Haverhill doesn't have a massive police presence. They can only make follow up on so many leads. And uh, hunting down the commanding officer of um, the military could be actually pretty difficult. So maybe they're trying to do the low-hanging fruit. Um, and once they've said, okay, he left this day, we don't need to 
go down that path. Let's go down, you know, these other uh, leads we have. It, it's very possible they did that as well. If I ever need a lawyer, I'm coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. You represent the government. <laughs> now, I mean, do, do you think this would be, w- would have been kind of obvious from, from the get-go, assuming they did check his alibi, and, and if, you know, he he really was there, I mean... In in New Hampshire, I mean, like uh, that would be kind of obvious, right? Assuming the police checked this. Well, one of the things I was going to say that it's actually now that I think about it, it's weird that he said that the police were treating him like Scott Peterson because there was no reason for them to treat him like Scott Peterson. I would be interested to know why they were doing that, Uh, because it would have been pretty easy and you would think fairly obvious where he was a couple of days before now it's hard, right? I mean, trying to track down where, where Bill was on a certain day, 16 years ago is hard, but like Al said at the time, it had been super easy. So I don't really understand him saying that about the police, unless maybe I think Bill has a way of rubbing people the wrong way. So maybe the police sort of noticed that about him and, and were more interested in him than they would normally be in someone who was a thousand miles away when the incident supposedly happened. That's fair. I think. And, um, did the CO describe his uh, conversation with Bill as a, as an in-person meeting or, or a phone call? Or how did, how did that go down? Now, this is interesting because, and I'm interested what I remember it, and I looked back at my notes, and I didn't write this down, but I remember him as presenting it as Bill coming to him, coming to him to ask him for permission. That is not what Bill said happened. If you listen to Aaron Larkin's interview with Bill, Bill says he called him and then went back to the base to take care of some stuff he had going on at the base. So that is an inconsistency that I don't know if that's, you know, 16 years and now the commanding officer remembers this this person coming to him personally, or if maybe just the way he described it made me think he came to him and actually he called him. But that is one inconsistency that if I had thought about it being an inconsistency at the time, I would have followed up on, but we did not ask that specific question. I will say that the colonel's recollection makes more sense. In the military, uh, you probably would not be so bold as to call your commanding officer. If you have something so important to ask your commanding officer, you show up in person and you stand by the door like a little puppy dog until he waves you in like this. And, and I really, I mean that um, uh, truthfully. Um, there are probably many layers to get to the commanding officer's phone line. Uh, you can't just pick up the phone and call the commanding officer. His line can't be tied up in case he needs to be answering the call of a con- another commanding officer at another base. And so I would say just based on my knowledge um, of kind of bureaucracy, it seems like the colonel's recollection makes more sense that it was in person. That makes sense. That makes sense. Like you can't talk to Tim. You can't just call Tim. Like you, you need to, no. there's a, there's, there's so many firewalls before you can actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, let us know chat room. If you've got any questions um, about this specifically, I think it's um, sort of a, Sort of a hot button issue, I guess. I mean, but what isn't in in the Moore Murray case uh, to some degree? It's sort of been this topic lately, especially this year. You know, since Bill was active on social media, um, you know, and and seemingly open to talk about these kind of things. You know, it's really kind of come come up. Uh, I don't really recall this topic too much um, before twenty twenty. Um, what do you guys think? Uh. Well, do we have another 30 minutes? Let, let me ask my bladder. Or... Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say this. I think I think a lot of what's going on the last six months doesn't have anything to do with Mora and has a lot to do with Bill. And I think there's a lot of people who are much more interested in protecting him and his reputation than they are in finding Mora. And that's why you've seen some of the things you've seen. And to me, some the, the Twitter feed, it's just it's just ridiculous some of the stuff that happens and and I don't want to go on a rant or anything here because we know that can get you in trouble on these uh, these these get vocals but you know <laughs> there's there's something in politics I don't know if you guys have, you know you know worked in politics or whatnot I used to work in politics and and there's a phrase so cover your ears if there are children in the room because it's a vulgar phrase called rat fucking. And what it is, is when you keep your political opponent so 
tangled up in little stupid things that they can never focus on the the purpose of their campaign. They can never get their message out. You know, it's like when when President Obama back in 2008, he'd been campaigning for 14 days straight and said something like, you know, I've been to 57 states or something. Right. It's a stupid little slip. But people use that over and over and over and over and over against him. And it's that kind of thing. And you see that in this case and you wonder why is that happening? Like, why, why does anyone care where John Smith got phone records 15 years ago? Why is that coming up now? I don't care at all. I don't care how he did it. It doesn't matter. It's completely irrelevant. But it's something, you know, it's something that, that comes up and it comes up at opportune times. And I feel like the less, and this is one reason we wanted to do this, because I think the less we talk about Bill, the better. I think the less we talk about Bill and the more we focus on the case, if, if at the end of the day, you know, focusing on the case leads back to Bill, so be it. But I just, I think the Bill stuff is nothing but a distraction. It's a very well orchestrated distraction. And, and I think what confuses me and has confused me for months is just like the why, you know, why? And I, and I really wrestle with that at least you know a couple times a day just why is that why is it happening why is all the rat fucking happening brett <laughs> well i think some of it's to just discredit people who've been involved in the community for a while who found themselves on the opposite side uh, of bill i think there are a lot of people who want to discredit you too uh, frankly you know i think there's a lot of people who want to discredit renter and i think a lot of that ties back to to bill and and like I said, I don't think it has anything to do with Mora. I think half the stuff we talk about has nothing to do with Mora at this yeah. point. Yeah, it kind of kind of gets me worked up. Um, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I should probably not. I don't know. It's just, it, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm go just not gonna on, go for it. <laughs> What's the worst that'll happen? I mean, look, I did. I don't want to get you worked up, but that whole incident with you. Right. Where you had to like apologize or whatever. I mean, that was BS. Like it was so stupid, but it was something just people seized on because it was something they could seize on to distract from the actual conversation. So we can talk about you guys and try and undermine you guys. And it's just, it's stupid. And I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know if there is any grand purpose. I don't know if it's just to sow confusion and chaos and keep people from being able to, to do anything uh, or what, but it's just, I'm tired. I mean, I'm sick of it, frankly. I got sick of it a while ago, and I just don't, I don't understand. I just don't understand. Uh, Tiger Lily has an interesting point, and maybe I can speak a bit for you on this just so I can understand it. Uh, she says, Bill and Sharon are master manipulators. They want to discredit anyone who opposes Bill. And she says, sorry, Brett, I disagree, and I think we should discuss Bill. But what you just said, Brett, made perfect sense to me, and I understand what Tiger Lily's saying, and that does make perfect sense to me as well, that you know, people who are master manipulators in regards to or in, in uh, connection to, uh, parallel to a missing person should be discussed. But you just said if, they, if Bill had anything to do with her disappearance, as long as we're focusing on Moore's disappearance, it will come back to Bill. So why are we talking about Bill if we're actually in this to look for Maura Murray? And if we're actually looking for Maura Murray and he did have something to do with it, it will come back to him anyway. So I, I can see both sides of, of the uh, conversation. Right. And I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think Bill had anything to do with this. I've, I've said that several times. Whatever, whatever Bill is or isn't. I mean, I, I think, think we'll just note that Murray. we've seen a number of cases, investigations get derailed when um, uh, the investigators get fixated on a particular person because they are a manipulator, because points everything points to them being just a scummy person, and they get hung up on that person, and they follow the person as opposed to the evidence. And even if the person is where the evidence leads, you don't build a case on a person. You build a case on the evidence that points to the person. So just investigatively, it is... Um, it, it, it can be a downfall to an investigation. But if it does come back to Bill, Brett, you're going to be pissed, right? Because you were wrong. I'm kidding. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, look, I won't be pissed if we find out what happened because I, I want I want to know what happened. Well, I, I do want to say that, uh, you know, there are obviously no sides in in something like this. And, and I think I think it sometimes kind of seems like there is. And uh and that really that that's what gets me annoyed. Um, I think so much is when 
when you have people who are looking for the truth. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's obvious when people are looking for the truth, to be honest, at this point. I really do. Um, because you, you're open to all possibilities. So that's that's my soapbox. I won't go any further. Well, I'll continue a, a little bit on this. I I would feel a lot differently if we were talking about somebody who was in the was in the military, was in uh, the service, and came out and was an exemplary person in life, and and had had no had no uh, uh, substantial accusations against them. And by all accounts, I can see why focusing on someone like Bill is happening. I can see why that's happening because of the accusations that appear to be credible are are allegedly credible. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I can see how if if he didn't have that, he would have been somebody who served in, in the military, someone who had a nonprofit organization, someone who... Uh, lost his girlfriend. She's still missing. He would be a lot. The people would be a lot more sympathetic to that. But because of these accusations of sexual abuse, that makes it really difficult to separate. And I'm not saying that's what I my personal feel. I'm saying that it's a collective thought and the collective opinion of some of the of the the uh, people on the Twitter thread. Right. You know, while, while that that is a very valid point, and that's, I think, why emotions get so heated here, that's precisely the reason we have something called 404B in court and that type of information that goes to show um, character outside of the particular crime is not allowed in court for that particular reason because it's so prejudicial. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but you can see how if you're focusing on all these allegations that come out 15 years later, um, and you, you said that accusations um, rather than convictions, even convictions aren't always allowed in in a case um, that may have similar underlying facts um, because the court system recognizes that um, it can really shade a juror's view of a person and they don't want them to be judged because they're a crappy person. They want them to be judged because of the evidence in that case. So I, I hear you on that. And um, that is a common problem and why a lot of people get frustrated when you have a defendant or um, a suspect who is just a crappy person. And everyone's like, that's just a crappy person. I don't like that person. They definitely did it because look at how they act. That's not allowed in court. And I would just say, I mean, I, uh... Number one, you know, don't want to get into all that stuff that's going on that's pending and given our positions, we shouldn't really get into that. But I will say I understand why people, I mean, it, character does matter. I mean, that, that's character is important. I do think that it's almost like a, a, an attractive nuisance with Bill. I mean, he's so attractive in this case. Like people just keep getting drawn back to him. They just can't get away from him. And I think one thing I would say if folks want to keep looking at, I'm not saying don't look at Bill. I mean, there's, there's tons of us, right? I mean, once again, if people are looking at Bill, it's not the end of the world. Not everybody has to do what I'm doing and not everybody should do what I'm doing. But I do think kind of figuring out like what parts of it do you want to look at? What parts of it do you want to figure out? And, and I think people on the Twitter thread have talked about, I feel like, and, and I, I could be making this up, that people realize, for instance, that Bill had his own rental car. Uh, is I think that's correct. Uh, MZ would know. I mean that that's interesting to me. Like that's like a piece of information that's interesting. And I think sort of identifying specific pieces of information, looking for specific things that Bill was doing or wasn't doing, who he was with, when he was with them. You know, is there if what I think is probably James' position now, or I don't know if it's position, but one of the things he suggests is possible is that this all happened after Bill got up there. And, and I said this on the show, and I think it's true. If you're interested in Bill and you think Bill is a viable suspect, focusing on that stuff and trying to do it in a very particular way, I think is the best way to go about figuring out whether or not he was involved.
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.